Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 7, which is the Five Precepts, a Householder's Guide to Daily Practice. This chapter is really important in order to understand how to adjust certain things that you might be doing in your life in order to bring the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. So far, we've been on this journey in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, and we've covered some very important topics. The Eightfold Path is really the central core teaching of Gautama Buddha, with other teachings plugging into it. The Five Precepts is one of those teachings that plugs into the Eightfold Path. And without understanding the Five Precepts, you would really pretty much be lost in order to progress on this path to enlightenment. It really is kind of a minimum, very, very minimum thing that you need to understand as you work and progress towards this path to enlightenment. Someone who's just starting out learning Buddhist teachings on this path to enlightenment, I would suggest that they start out with the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and the five precepts. Those three teachings are very central and core, and they need to be understood and practiced in order to bring the practice along and bring the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. And those are kind of the core aspects of teachings. And with that comes meditation, learning breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. So if a beginner practitioner was just to start out with those particular teachings, they would do themselves a huge service. And there's plenty more to learn and plenty more that needs to be learned in order to attain enlightenment. However, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, along with meditation, which is really part of the Eightfold Path, are the core central teachings that will make up your life practice. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through and talking about the five precepts. If you've studied Gautama Buddha's teachings at all at this point, and you've heard that the Buddha taught no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants, then you haven't studied Gautama Buddha's teachings deeply. These are very rudimentary translations of what Gautama Buddha actually said for the five precepts and why we should be practicing these and what the actual precepts are. So this very rudimentary translation of no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying and no intoxicants, this kind of makes it sound like the five precepts are kind of like rules 
or commandments almost. And that's not what the five precepts are at all. And in fact, the descriptions of what I'm going to be using for the five precepts are translations directly from Gautama Buddha's own words. And you will see that his teachings are much deeper than these rudimentary translations that you may have been exposed to in the past. So let's go ahead and move into learning the five precepts. And as we do, I would like to just remind you that you're welcome to ask any questions that you like. If you are in the Daily Wisdom Facebook group, the Daily Wisdom YouTube page, or you're in our Zoom interactive classroom, you can type into the comment section any question that you like, and our moderator, Max, will ensure that those get asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or any follow-up questions that you like. If you would like to just kind of ask them directly, you're more than welcome to do that. So I really appreciate all of you guys being here and choosing to learn the teachings of Gautama Buddha. I really appreciate Max's help and being the moderator and providing his effort and energy to be able to help us facilitate a class and give you guys a chance to interact and get your questions answered. So let's go ahead and talk about the five precepts and really dive in with the Gautama Buddha's words. And as we learn the five precepts, let's just first talk about what the five precepts are. What they aren't is they aren't rules, they aren't commandments, okay? What the five precepts are is their guidance that significantly reduces unwholesome gamma production, and they will assist you in producing a pure mind and a pure life. So everything Gautama Buddha taught is guidance, right? Because he didn't use fear or guilt or shame in order to motivate people to learn and practice his teachings. Because what is he guilting you into? What is he shaming you about? What would he try to use fear for? Because these are aspects of the mind that are discontent and he's actually trying to help you through his teachings to eliminate these aspects of the mind, these feelings in the mind. So he never used guilt, shame, or fear in order to motivate people to learn his teachings. So he provides this guidance because he's a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. His mind is already perfectly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. He knows the wisdom that it takes in order to attain this enlightened mental state. If people would like to learn with him, great. He points the way and says, this is the way to attain enlightenment. If people aren't interested in learning with him, okay, that's fine too. So he already has solved the problem with his own mind and anybody who learns and practices with him, they know that their condition of their mind is improving. So he has no interest to kind of force people to learn and practice his teachings. He's providing guidance that if you learn these and you practice them, you can then independently observe the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. The mind gradually moves to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, and you can observe that for yourself right now. These precepts aren't about doing everything perfectly for your entire life, and then sometime in the future after you die, some beneficial thing happens for you. What these precepts are about is if you learn them and practice them, then you can see the condition of the mind and the condition of your life improve right now, 
right now during this life. So this is guidance that the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is pointing to and saying, this is the way. These precepts are to significantly reduce your unwholesome karma production. It's the eightfold path that completely eliminates all unwholesome karma production. These precepts alone would not allow you to attain enlightenment. It's the entire eightfold path that is the entire path to enlightenment. And it includes a lot more than just the five precepts. But the five precepts plug into the eightfold path and it's part of the eightfold path. It's part of the moral conduct of the eightfold path. So in the eightfold path, we've got right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The five precepts plug into the right speech and right actions of the Eightfold Path. So these are part of the moral conduct that we learn and we practice as part of the Eightfold Path, which will produce wholesome results for you. So this significantly knocks down a lot of the unwholesome gamma production through learning and practicing these, but you would still need the entire Eightfold Path in order to attain enlightenment. Since we're talking about gamma just briefly, let's kind of go into just a little bit of a description of what gamma is. We're gonna actually explore this topic in two weeks in a lot more detail, but let's just talk about it briefly because it relates to everything else that we're learning in Gautama Buddha's teachings. What gamma is, or the natural law of gamma, is its cause and effect action and result. Essentially, it's the result of our decisions. Okay, It's a natural law that the unenlightened mind is unaware of. And because the unenlightened mind is unaware of this natural law, it causes itself problems. The mind struggles through life. It finds it challenging to conduct everyday daily activities because the unenlightened mind is unawakened to this natural law. The mind is, doesn't have the wisdom of this natural law. It's unaware of the true reality of this natural law. And what Gautama Buddha's teachings are doing is providing you the wisdom of this natural law. And then because it's a natural law, you can test it and you can see for yourself whether it's true or not through independent verification of the truth. What gamma isn't, is it isn't this mystical, magical thing in the sky that's dishing out punishment and rewards. That's not what gamma is at all. It's a natural law that the more you understand it, the more you can make wiser and wiser choices in your life, and then you'll have better and better results. This natural law is very similar to the natural law of gravity. When you first were born, you didn't have the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. And because of that, you found it difficult to conduct your daily life. You struggled as a two-year-old, as a four-year-old, as a five-year-old. You kept falling down. Your toys were falling down. You were tipping over glasses and breaking things because your mind didn't have the wisdom of this natural law of gravity. But as you grew up, more and more people started teaching you about this natural law of gravity, where to put your cups, 
where to put your toys, that your body has to be nice and strong to walk and run. And as you became more aware of this natural law of gravity, as the mind awakened to the wisdom of this natural law of gravity, you started finding it more and more peaceful and easier to conduct your daily life and move about the world in whichever way you would like. And at this point in time, you could probably jump on an airplane, go anywhere in the world, and you fully understand this natural law of gravity. Well, the natural law of gamma functions exactly the same way. There's no one administering it. There's nobody in control of it. Whether you're aware of this natural law of gravity or not, you're still affected by it. Even though you were five years old and you didn't know about this natural law of gravity, you were still affected by it. The natural law of gamma is the same way. You're still affected by this natural law even though your mind is not fully aware of it at this particular time. But what these teachings are doing is giving you the wisdom of this natural law so that the more you understand it, your mind awakens with this wisdom of this natural law so then in your own personal free will choices, you will make better and better choices in your life based on this wisdom of the natural law of gamma. Again, it's not punishment and rewards. It's not this mystical thing in the world. There's nobody administering this natural law. It just happens by way of everybody interacting with each other. And you'll understand that more as we talk today. Because as we talk today, I'm going to be sharing with you about this natural law as it relates to these five precepts. Because what these five precepts are is they're very detailed teachings that are based on harmlessness. When you practice harmlessness from the Eightfold Path, which is right intention, that second step of the Eightfold Path, harmlessness, non-ill will, when you practice harmlessness where you're not harming other beings and you're not harming yourself, by not harming others, you won't cause harm to yourself. The way that this natural law works is that if you cause harm to others, that harm is going to come back to you. And you're going to discover that even more and more clearly today when we go through and talk about these five precepts. Because what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about what these precepts are, we're going to be talking about why you need to practice them, and we're going to be talking about potential outcomes that if you didn't practice these five precepts, what are some things that you can expect? And the interesting thing about your life right now is there's been periods of time in your life where I'm sure you haven't practiced these five precepts to perfection. In fact, right now, you're probably not practicing these five precepts to perfection. So you can look backwards as we talk today. You can look backwards and you can prove that these precepts are indeed the truth because when you don't practice these, you're going to see harmful things that are happening to you. Because remember, one of the biggest things that I share in this group learning program in all of the classes that I teach everywhere, whether it's online or in person, is don't believe me about anything whatsoever. When I share these teachings with you today, you can look at them and put them to your mind, kind of reflecting on what I'm sharing with you. And you can look back over your life or the life of people around you, and you can see how when people aren't practicing these five precepts, they're harming others 
and therefore harm comes to them. So we were going to talk about these potential outcomes so that you can see the truth in this. Rather than believing what I'm saying, which I'm not interested in you doing whatsoever, you can actually take this wisdom that I'm sharing with you from the Buddhist teachings and then look at your life, look at other people's life, look at the world and the people that are in the world, and you can see how by us not practicing these precepts in the world, it's causing heartache, it's causing misery, it's causing struggle and complications in our life. When we talk about these five precepts, they're going to sound somewhat similar on the surface to what you've been taught by your caregivers. Your primary caregivers all your life have probably been teaching you a good amount of these five precepts at a surface level. You've kind of heard things like what I started out with. Don't kill, don't steal, don't have sexual misconduct, don't lie, don't take intoxicants. This rudimentary translation of Gautama Buddha's five precepts has pretty much been shared with us by our primary caregivers our entire life. But what doesn't get shared with us typically is why is it important not to do these things? And what are the potential outcomes if we don't practice these things. So that's why we're going to use Gautama Buddha's words so we get the real deep knowledge and wisdom of what he was saying and what these actual precepts are. We're going to talk about why, if we don't practice this, why? What is it going to do? What's the issue of not practicing this? What are the potential outcomes that we can experience if we don't practice these? Because by looking at the teachings in this way, then you will be able to more fully see that in fact these teachings are truth and there's real wisdom there. If you just sit back and you believe what I'm sharing with you in terms of the precepts and you don't really reflect on them, you don't really investigate what the Buddha is teaching, then you won't gain the wisdom that you need in order to make the better and better decisions in your life. So when I share the Buddha's words, as we talk about each of these precepts, we don't even want to believe the Buddha, right? He died 2,500 years ago, but we don't even want to believe him. There's no reason to believe him. There's no reason to believe me. Take these words and these teachings of wisdom Take these teachings, reflect on them, and then let's discuss them so that you can see that, in fact, this is the truth. And then with this new wisdom, you will be able to make better and better choices in your life as you conduct your daily life. So that's what our plan is for today as we explore these five precepts. And as we do, I'll pause at different times in order to allow questions that might come in from anywhere in social media or in our Zoom classroom. So with that said, let me just pause and see if Max has any questions from the audience or in Zoom, if you guys would like to raise your hand, you're welcome to ask your question or follow up question directly. So are there any questions that we have right now before we jump into the actual five precepts? I have a question, David. In the book, Developing a Life Practice, you write, through practice of these precepts, you will drastically eliminate unwholesome camera production. Are these all we would need to do to eliminate unwholesome camera? Absolutely not. You are going to need to do these 
and the entire Eightfold Path, this five precepts will significantly reduce your unwholesome gamma production, but it's not going to completely eliminate your unwholesome gamma production. So by making choices, by making decisions in your life that are in line with these five precepts, you will significantly reduce the harm that you're causing in the world. So therefore it's gonna clean up a good amount of your life but it's not until you learn and practice the entire Eightfold Path that is going to extinguish or eliminate all the unwholesome gamma production. So all the unwholesome decisions that you're making in your life, it's only through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path that's going to give you the wisdom to make those wholesome decisions, which will lead to wholesome results. Okay, got it. Thank you. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's go into the first precept. This first precept, again, is normally translated as do not kill. And it sounds like a rule, right? It sounds like uh, somebody's kind of ordering you to do something. That's not what the Buddha said. The Buddha didn't say do not kill. What he said was, along the lines of guidance, guiding you, abandoning the taking of life, refraining from the taking of life without stick or sword scrupulous compassionate trembling for the welfare of all living beings okay there's much more meaning here than just do not kill what he's sharing here is this precept is all about living beings so it's important if you're going to study Gautama Buddha's words that you really investigate these so first Let's look at what is a living being. A living being is a being that is created by an egg, a sperm, and also has a consciousness, so a mind. These three things have to be present in order for there to be a living being. So this living being would have had to have been created from an egg, from sperm, and it needs to have a consciousness or a mind. So, of course, Human beings are a living being. Animals, insects, mammals, all of the animal world are living beings because they are born from an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness. Plants are not a living being. They don't have an egg, a sperm, and a consciousness. All three of these criteria don't exist for plants, and they also don't exist for bacteria. While we may consider a plant to be alive, it's not a living being. And while we might consider bacteria to be alive, it's not a living being because these things don't have a consciousness. They're not born of an egg and a sperm. Okay, so mainly what we're talking about here in this precept is animals and humans. That is what a living being is. And notice here he's talking about trembling for the welfare, right? Living compassionately, trembling for the welfare. What he's not saying here is he's not saying preserve all life at all costs. A lot of times when people see the rudimentary translation of no killing or do not kill, they think it's preserve all life at all costs. This isn't the way that he's teaching. What he's essentially teaching you here is to develop this compassion, right? 
develop this genuine interest in being concerned about the misfortune of other beings, being concerned about other beings, because the more you practice this, the more you're practicing harmlessness. Okay. The type of things that would be an intentional killing where you're not having compassion for other living beings, where you don't have this compassion and trembling for the welfare of other living beings are things like euthanasia of humans or animals. If we euthanize humans, i.e. assisted suicide essentially, or animals, that is an intentional killing. If we do that, it's going to for sure cause harm to us. Because if we kill other beings, we're going to experience an effect. Because remember, gamma is cause and effect or action and result. Typically in situations where there is euthanasia and people are making those decisions to do that, there's oftentimes a certain amount of guilt after that decision has been made. And that guilt is discontentedness. That's part of your unwholesome gamma production. That is the result of your decisions. You made the decision to euthanize a human or animal. And because of that, you're now feeling guilty. You may feel shameful. You may even feel fear as part of that decision. And that's going to stick around and linger for a while. And you can see this for yourself if you've ever been involved in this or if you've ever known someone else that has made this decision. Now, some people talk about compassionately killing an animal that's sick. Maybe they've had a stroke or uh, cancer or got hit by a car or something like this. I understand that's part of our society now. And I understand that there's people that feel like that's a good decision. However, if I was in that situation, I would allow the animal to fulfill its entire life and ensure that it lives out its entire life. Because in doing so, that animal then experiences all of its gamma in this life, and it has a better chance of being reborn in a better situation in its next life. Because that animal can attain enlightenment as an animal. It's going to have to be reborn potentially countless times to ultimately get into the human world to have the opportunity to attain enlightenment. If we execute a decision to have euthanasia of an animal, we're ending this animal's life prematurely and it doesn't get a chance to live out its entire life and get a chance to move on to a better destination in its next life. And because the person is making that decision, you're going to be most likely left with guilt or shame or fear as a part of this, maybe even sadness, right? And that's the gamma. Likewise, with termination of pregnancies, termination of pregnancies or abortion is going to cause a certain amount of guilt, shame, or fear. It's even going to cause a certain amount of pain. And I'm not here to say whether abortion should be legal or illegal. That's not what the Buddha is teaching at all. The Buddha doesn't deal with the legal laws of society. What the Buddha is teaching is the natural law of gamma. The natural law of gamma is unbiased. Whether society makes abortion legal or illegal, it's completely the decision of society and the people in society. 
all the Buddha is sharing here is in his guidance is that if we terminate pregnancies, then there's going to be unwholesome gamma as a result of that. There's going to be guilt and shame and other discontent feelings, sadness and things like this. We're not talking about necessarily what's right or wrong. That's not what the five precepts are there for. What all of Gautama Buddha's teachings are there for is teaching you why is your mind discontent? Why is the mind discontent? Well, if you're involved in any of these activities that I'm going to go through and share with you, you will see that the cause of that discontentedness is because of these actions that somebody is taking. So if there's euthanasia of humans or animals, if there is termination of pregnancy, if there's suicide, assisted suicide, if there's capital punishment by governments, if there's war, if there's any government-sponsored killings like assassinations and things like this, and of course murder, all of these things are going to lead to unwholesome gamma production. I can give you examples of these. Let's just take war, for example. Governments will sometimes ask soldiers to go into war, go into battle over some particular reason. Well, even though the government has kind of sponsored and agreed and said, yes, you're legally able to go to this other country and kill people in that country. Well, that's what happens on a legal level. But what Gautama Buddha is talking about here is on a moral level, what's happening in the mind. This is the reason why oftentimes soldiers come back with PTSD and other mental problems. This is why soldiers oftentimes commit suicide, right? This is their gamma coming back to them because they went off into war and battle and they killed. And their mind knows that that's wrong, even though they had the support of their government, even though it was legally right in terms of their government sponsored this killing. But morally, the mind is not feeling well about this. And this is why oftentimes soldiers come home with all kinds of mental challenges and oftentimes commit suicide. And of course, we know soldiers come back with amputated legs or arms or other limbs. They have all kinds of problems physically if they actually survive the war. This is the unwholesome gamma coming back to the people involved in the actual killing. So if we kill, it's going to create unwholesome gamma production. Likewise, on the level of war, what happens is a government says, you know, we don't agree with what you're doing, this other country. Therefore, we're going to send our soldiers to your land and we're going to kill you until you submit to our wishes. You've angered us. You've made us upset. We don't like what you're doing. Therefore, we're going to send people to you and we're going to kill you until you submit to what we say is correct. Well, when a government does this and they send soldiers into battle, not only are they harming the soldiers and all the families that are connected to those soldiers, but they're also leaving in the minds of their civilization, of their population in the country. They're leaving in the minds that the leaders in the country are saying, when you don't like something about somebody and you disagree with somebody, you fight them, you murder them, you attack them. 
And when you disagree with somebody, we're going to send people to go attack you, murder you, and hurt you. So now, countries that do a lot of war inside their country has a lot of killing and has a lot of hostility because what the leaders of that country are teaching the population is that if somebody does something that you don't like and that you disagree with, attack them. So you can look at countries in the world right now that have had a history of a lot of war and attacking other countries. And you can look inside those countries right now and you can see that there's a lot of murder on the streets, there's a lot of hostility, and there's a lot of aggression in that population of people. This is the gamma, the unwholesome decisions that the leaders have made in that, those countries. And now it's coming back to them because their population has learned that when somebody does something we don't like, we fight and we kill. And that's why we see certain countries in the world that have large populations of mass shootings, of war in the streets, and problems with people killing each other, right? These are just a few examples. We could go through every single one of these. But I think if you take your time and you look at these wisely and you investigate these, you can see by how doing any of these actions of killing, the mind is not being trained to be compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And because of that, it's going to cause harm in the world through killing, and therefore that harm is going to come back to you and is going to come back to the society. Moving on here, there's things called DNRs or do not resuscitate. Nowadays with modern medical equipment, we have the ability to resuscitate somebody who's died. If somebody's physically died, we have the ability to bring them back to life. And there's people who sign legal documents that say, if they ever die, don't bring me back to life. Don't use modern medicine to bring me back to life. If somebody chooses to do that, that's not an intentional killing. So somebody has chosen that if they die, they're comfortable with that. They're content with that. They don't need to be brought back to life and don't use medical equipment to bring me back into the world. So this is not an intentional killing. It's also not suicide and it's not euthanasia because what's happened is the human being has already died. They're just asking not to be brought back to life. So ensure that you understand that a DNR is still practicing this precept because they're just saying, hey, I'm comfortable with dying. Just let me die. And I'm not interested in being brought back to, to life. One thing you might be thinking about is defense and protection, right? There may be situations that come up in your life where the physical body gets attacked. And if it does, you might be curious, well, what do I do in that situation? Well, there's lots of things that a human being can actually do prior to getting into a situation where somebody is attacking the body. So there's lots of wise choices that we can make. Things like certain areas of the world that we know may have problems, maybe we don't enter those places, or there are certain times of day that we know not to go outside. There are certain 
environments where we know if we enter into these environments, it could cause a situation where we're putting the physical body in harm's way. So we can make wise choices not to do that. We can also make wise choices to practice things like right intention, right speech, and right action. And by having right intention of harmlessness, by speaking with right speech, and by having right action, we will find that we will never be in a situation where we're potentially going to be in harm's way. So the way to kind of defend and protect yourself is to ensure that you're making a lot of wise decisions not to actually be in a situation where you need to protect yourself because you've actually ensured that you're not in a dangerous situation. However, even with that said, you might find yourself at home one day just minding your own business and somebody just barges through the door and attacking you or your family. If that's the situation where you're in an unprovoked attack, then in this situation, you should defend yourself and protect yourself in the best way that you know how, if you would like to do that. It's a personal choice of whether you choose to do that or not. But if you're going to do that, ensure that you do as little harm as possible in order to get the best results possible. Of course, if you are able to just run and get out of the way and just go somewhere else and avoid the confrontation altogether, that's best because you're not going to get harmed. The physical body's not going to get harmed. There's no shame in running away from a dangerous situation. There's no shame whatsoever running away from a dangerous situation and keeping the body in the mind in life so that you can now live compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. But again, even with that said, you may find yourself in a situation where you need to defend or protect the physical body or the people who are around you in your household. And if you choose to do that, just do it with as little harm to the other individual as possible. But there may even become a time where you do need to actually kill this person in order to protect your life. And if you're in that situation, this is understandable. Because remember, this precept isn't protect all life at all costs. If somebody walks into your house with a gun at 2 a.m. in the morning, they're not there to deliver flowers and chocolates, right? And if you were to defend yourself with a gun and you killed that person, you may still experience some guilt or other feelings, but I imagine you would feel really, really bad if that person ended up killing you and killing your family as a result of them invading your home. So this is a personal choice of whether you choose to actually defend yourself and protect yourself and by what means you choose to do that. Because in certain situations, it might be better to not be aggressive. And that's where Gautama Buddha never tells you exactly what to do in life. It's all about you making wise choices in the present moment of what's the best way to do as least harm as possible and avoid this whole situation and try to ensure that the physical body in the mind is protected. One of the things that you need to think about in terms of this particular precept is if you are compassionate and trembling for the welfare of all living beings, would you still consume animal products, 
right? Knowing what goes on in the meat industry, knowing what goes on in order to produce animal products, would a being who is compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, still eat meat? For me, I chose no, that I wouldn't. And I slowly, gradually moved away from animal products. So that's something that you need to consider. There's a lot of detail in this chapter that I share about things that you can consider on whether you should consume animal products or not. If you choose to move to vegan or when you choose is totally a personal choice. But once again, you can see the truth for yourself. If you eat animal products now, not only are you eating the animal products, but you're eating the drugs and toxins and hormones that the farmers are putting into those products. And when you ingest that flesh, it's affecting your physical body, it's affecting your mind. And there's more sickness in the body than what you probably realize right now. And those chemicals that are the drugs, hormones, and toxins that are getting injected into the animals are affecting the mind as well. And the way that you can see the truth for yourself is if you ever move into a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet, you will see how the physical body becomes more healthy and the mind becomes more healthy too. Because remember, don't believe me here. I'm pointing the way and saying, if you move to a vegan diet, you're going to see that your body and the mind is more healthy. Don't believe me. But if you would like to try it and practice it, you will see the truth for yourself. But if you choose to do that or when you choose to do that is completely up to you. There's no judgment or expectation on my part that my students would need to do this. It's just me sharing with you that based on my own experience and the experience of other people that have done this, you will observe that by eliminating animal products from your life, you will see that the body and the mind will be more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you're not ingesting these animal products which involve drugs, toxins, and hormones. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on this first precept. We have a question from Sue Julian. Hi, David. I have a question about not killing and kama. When plants are harvested, many insects and small animals may inadvertently be killed in the process. Does this create bad kama? This does not create bad kama. The goal of harvesting a crop is to harvest the crop. The insects are there, that's their kama, that they are insects, that they've been reborn into being an insect, that's their kama. And they're there doing whatever they do as insects. If we're walking along and harvesting this crop and there's insects that die, then that's their gamma and they're going to need to be reborn anyway. So that's why I mentioned that this precept isn't preserve all life at all costs, because if that was the case, it would be utterly impossible to even walk the face of this earth, because by walking down the street, we actually step on ants and other insects all the time. Just by driving our car down the street, there's insects that get killed. So it's not preserve all life at all costs. It's living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So if a bug landed on me, I would just swipe it off with my hand or, or blow it off because I'm not interested in killing it. And what that does 
is it's not necessarily the preservation of life like I'm talking about, but what it does is it trains your mind to be compassionate for all living beings. And where this translates is if you can get down to the level of a mosquito or an ant lands on you and you flick it off or blow it off, and you have that level of compassion that you're taking your time to not kill that being, that translates into all of your other aspects of practice. So now when you're with human beings or you're with animals or any kind of other beings, now you're going to be more compassionate because the mind is practicing this compassion. Because remember, it's all about training your mind. And through living compassionately and you know, swiping the bugs off or blowing them off, it allows you to now train the mind to be compassionate towards all beings, not just these insects that are landing on you, but all beings. So when we're harvesting a crop, we're harvesting the crop. Our goal isn't to go out there and intentionally kill insects, but of course, insects are going to be killed in the process of harvesting a crop, and that is their gamma. But it's not an intentional killing. And remember, this precept isn't preserve all life at all costs. It's training the mind to be compassionate and trembling for the welfare of all living beings. We have a question from Shital. A plant is born from a seed. A seed comes from a fruit. A fruit is formed from the fusion of an egg and a stamen. I'm not sure about consciousness or mind in a plant. I'm still unsure why eating plants are not living beings. Please elaborate on this. Sure. A plant doesn't have a consciousness. It doesn't have a mind, right? A plant doesn't have two eyeballs. It doesn't have the ability to pick itself up and use its mind in its own motion to move throughout the world. It doesn't have a consciousness to make conscious decisions. So it's not a living being. A plant is not a a living being. Where the confusion comes in is we often consider plants alive. We'll refer to them that way, but they don't have a consciousness. So they're not a living being. We have a follow-up. In fact, we have a... Another question from Shital. If soldiers on a border are only protecting the outsiders to invade in our country and are fighting only when the bordering country soldiers are infiltrating, in that case, if a soldier kills the soldier from the other side, is that killing unwholesome karma? There's still going to be unwholesome karma, right? Because the unwholesome karma is the effect the cause and effect, right? It's not about this mystical, magical thing that's happening. By that soldier being at the border, again, we're not talking about what's right or wrong, right? Because, yeah, they need to protect their country if there's other soldiers that are attacking their country. So I'm not talking about whether it's right or wrong that those soldiers are there. What we're talking about is by those soldiers choosing to be there, and choosing to kill, that's a decision that they're making, and therefore that harm can come to them. So they're in harm's way. They can be killed themselves, they can be maimed, or have other aspects of their physical body that are amputated or destroyed. Even if they come out of that situation completely intact with the physical body, but they had to kill people while they were doing it, they're still going to be suffering from guilt and shame and potentially fear, right? Even just bombs dropping, you know, they can 
have problems with their ears and, and brain issues, right? So this is the unwholesome gamma. The unwholesome gamma is the effects that that individual is going to feel and experience in this life and potentially future lives. It's not about what's right or wrong and punishment and rewards. It's about by making the decision to be a soldier and stand on that border, even though you might be technically right and you're protecting your country, by making that decision to be there, you are putting yourself in harm's way. And therefore, because of that decision that you're making, that you're going to kill another person, there's harm that has the potential to come to you and will come to you as a result of that decision that you're causing harm, so therefore harm is going to come to you. We have a question from Judith. Why would a child be sent to be a child soldier under horrible threats? I find that very tricky karma. It's bad if they go, and it's also bad and dangerous if they don't go. Either way meant murder for my granddad when he was sent to war at age 16. Why would karma be double-binded? I don't understand what you mean by why would karma be double-binded. I think what you're saying is if they go, it's going to cause problems. And if they don't go, it's going to cause problems. Karma is all about what decisions are we making and what are the results of those decisions. So if this child soldier is sent to war and they choose to go to war, I think you understand now that that's going to cause problems for them. But if they didn't go, like you're saying, it's going to cause problems for them as well. But them being born into that life and where they are in the world, that's their gamma also, right? Like you aren't in a situation where you would potentially be a child soldier. And that's because of your gamma from your previous lives. You were born into this world in the situation that you're in when you were born with a certain set of family, certain material wealth, certain access to things that you need. So the children who are born into situations where they may end up being a child soldier, that's their gamma from their previous lives of where they're actually born into the world. So every decision that we make, we are going to experience the effects of that either in this life or some future life. We have a question from Joy. My country is scary and defense and protection have been on the mind of my family lately. My son came out as LGBTQ two months ago and has had death threats because of this. Is it okay to own a gun and take self-defense classes? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with owning a gun and taking self-defense classes. This is discernment. This is wise choices given any particular situation. But also in this situation, what's happening is the person is fearful, right? And that fear, that's discontentedness. This person has to make wise and wiser choices about this particular life and what they would like to do in this life and also trying to find a way to maintain their safety. And that's where they have to strike a balance and understand where is the middle for them. And that's why Gautama Buddha didn't give teachings about never own a gun or always own a gun all these kind of decisions are up to the individual. And that's where discernment and wise decision-making comes in and finding that middle. And the thing that this person needs to think about the most is their fear because this fear is discontentedness and it's going to cause 
all kinds of decisions that this fear is going to drive this person to not only purchase a gun, but it's going to change their behaviors, change their patterns in life, change their friends, change lots of decisions in their life based off of this fear. So they really should look at learning and practicing these teachings so that they can gain more and more wisdom of how to make better and better decisions in their life. We have a question from Manal. Teacher David, can you speak more about suicide and how this affects not only the person who calls it to themselves, but also how and why this acts affects the person's immediate family members who bear the sudden loss and who are left with oftentimes a lifetime of grief and or guilt of not having helped enough? Sure. So if somebody's choosing to commit suicide, they're having craving for the extermination of their life. If there's craving at the time of death, there's going to be rebirth. So a person who's got suicidal thoughts, sure, they're sad. Sure, they're going through a lot of anguish. But killing themselves is only going to make the problem worse because they're going to end up being reborn countless times in the lower realms in either hell, afflicted spirits, or the animal realm, in these lower realms, there's going to be countless, countless rebirths before they ever get a chance to become human again to escape this whole cycle of rebirth. So the suffering and anguish that someone is feeling who's contemplating committing suicide, the suicide isn't the solution. If people have been taught that they only ever get one life, they think that by killing themselves, it's actually solving the problem but it's actually not. That's not true. You don't get just one life. There's this cycle of rebirth. So by exterminating your life and having the craving to do so, you're guaranteeing that you are going to be reborn. And because you haven't attained one of the four stages of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn into the lower realms. And once you're in the lower realms, it's like a prison. You're trapped there. And it's going to take many, many countless rebirths to ever get back to the human again. So what a person should do who's contemplating suicide is understand that killing yourself isn't solving anything. It's making the problem a million times worse because you're going to be constantly reborn and having to do this over and over and over and over and over again. What a wiser person would do is rather than kill yourself is just apply effort and energy to learn these teachings and train the mind to eliminate those suicidal thoughts and getting closer and closer to enlightenment. But even if you go all the way through your life with these suicidal thoughts and you happen to have a natural death, there's the potential that you can attain enlightenment at natural death, which means it's all over with, that you totally escape the cycle of rebirth where if you end your life prematurely through suicide, then you're ensuring that this suffering is going to keep continuing over and over and over again. You're pretty much inking that into stone. So committing suicide doesn't solve anything. It's making the problem a lot worse for you because you're constantly going to be reborn when you could actually learn and practice these teachings, eliminate the suicidal thoughts and get to a peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy But even if you don't get that in this life, you could actually potentially attain enlightenment at death, which if you did, then you've escaped all this suffering and the discontentedness that comes with it and ended the cycle of rebirth.
So that's for the individual who might be contemplating suicide. For the people who are left behind, if somebody does commit suicide, the reason why they're suffering, the reason why they have discontentedness is because of their craving, desire, attachment. They're having this mental longing with a strong eagerness for this to be permanent and not recognizing that this person made their own choices, right? That person made their choice to actually kill themselves and there's nothing that you could have physically done to make it different. If somebody's intent on killing themselves, they're gonna find a way, one way or another. It doesn't matter what other people do. Sure, we can try to help, we can try to encourage them to get support and get therapy and get the things that they need, but ultimately it comes down to that person's individual choices. And if somebody chooses to commit suicide, that's their personal choice, no matter what the other family members are trying to do. So you have to recognize that it's that person's choice to kill themselves. And since they were determined to do that, there was nothing that you could have done otherwise. The reason why your mind is feeling guilty, shameful, and maybe angered or sad is because of this craving, desire, attachment, holding on and expecting this permanence. The same reason why you get angry if you break a dish in your kitchen is the same reason why you get angry or sad or feeling guilty when somebody kills themselves or somebody dies that's close to you. It's the actual same cause because this plate in the kitchen that drops and breaks and then you feel angered or sad because it broke is because the mind expects permanence and it wants to hold on to that plate permanently. And the same thing happens with this human being who either dies or commits suicide. The mind wants to hold on to it permanently. And this is what's causing the mind to be discontent. And that's why with the Buddhist teachings, by addressing craving, desire, attachment, by addressing this hatred, anger, ill will, by addressing this ignorance or delusion or this unknowing of true reality, by eliminating the self, by eliminating the ego, essentially by walking this path to enlightenment, not only will your mind not get discontent when you break that plate, but you actually get to the point where if people die around you, you won't become discontent. You can have appreciation and gratitude and love for the time that you spent together, but your mind won't feel anger, sadness, or loneliness because you trained your mind so well to recognize impermanence. But this takes time and effort to do this. But the problem is the same. It's the same craving, desire, attachment that's causing the mind to be discontent with the broken plate versus someone who dies. It's exactly the same problem in the human mind. We have a question from Joy. Are suicide rates really low in countries that are predominantly Buddhist? I was hospitalized several years ago knowing that I was suicidal. I chose to go to the emergency room and save myself. Until these classes, I always knew it was an option. I can honestly say, for the first time in my adult life, I don't think suicide would be an option for me. Thank you, David. Good job, Joy. Um, that's good progress. Good to hear that. I haven't looked at suicidal rates all across the world, but I know here in Thailand, suicidal rates are pretty low You know, per capita compared to a place like the US, because I did look at that recently, about within the last three to six months. 
you know, in a place like Thailand, they're a Buddhist country, but the level of depth of practice by individuals are going to vary, right? Everybody's going to be practicing at different levels. Not everybody is on this path as deeply and securely as maybe you might be here in Thailand, even though it's a Buddhist country. So there's going to be suicides until you know the entire world is firmly rooted in these teachings and really understands these teachings really deeply. Even during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, there were monks who were ordained with him that committed suicide. So even someone who was learning with the actual Buddha 2,500 years ago, there were people who committed suicide. And he would oftentimes be teaching or meditating. And one of his other students would come and inform him that some disciples had committed suicide. He didn't have anything to say about it. He was just, you know, okay, you know, I don't know exactly what he said. They didn't say what he said. It was just kind of like informing him that this had happened because I can't speak for other people, but as the mind awakens, it can almost kind of struggle at certain times. It's not this yellow brick road where everything's peaceful, right? Even the yellow brick road that Dorothy traveled, if you've ever watched The Wizard of Oz, that yellow brick road, you know, she met this lion, she met the scarecrow, she met other characters along the way that kind of created a little bit of problems and struggles for her, right? So this path to enlightenment, it can be somewhat uncomfortable at times. And when it gets pretty uncomfortable, that's when you know you're dealing with some pretty dark and deep things. So it's wonderful to hear that Joy has had suicidal thoughts in the past, but through walking this path and training the mind, those have pretty much been eliminated for the first time in her adult life. That's excellent progress. But understand that as things progress, if they start feeling difficult or uncomfortable, not just for you, Joy, but for anybody, suicide is never the option. Reach out to your teacher. Talk to other classmates. Get help if there's anything that comes to mind that you're not sure of. Oftentimes, you might even hear of people like during the Buddhist time who were off meditating on their own or they were learning certain aspects of the path and people commit suicide. But in every population of people, whether they're disciples of the Buddha or they're just people in Ireland or New Zealand or somewhere else, there's going to be people who are committing suicide because their mind is unawakened to what's actually transpiring and what they're actually causing more harm than they are good. So we need to understand that suicide is a decision of that individual only, right? They chose to do that. And we don't need to feel guilty or shameful because somebody else committed suicide. We should try to help where we can help and try to encourage them to learn these teachings and train the mind because you can have the good effects like joy where she's trained her mind to eliminate suicidal thoughts. But ultimately, if someone does choose to commit suicide, that's their own personal choice. And we can't change that. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, let's go on to the second precept then. This one's pretty straightforward. The second one is abandoning the taking of what is not given, living purely 
accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. Okay, so this is pretty much what we've all been taught our whole life about not taking things that don't belong to us. Because if there's people in the world that are working and applying effort and resources to acquiring certain possessions and resources, and we were to take that from them, it's going to harm them. And therefore, harm is going to come to us, right? If we're that kind of person that just takes things from people without any kind of consideration for other people's well-being, then that harm is going to cause harm to us. And that's why we have jails and law enforcement. And this is a pretty big one that syncs up with the laws, right? That's our gamma. If we stole something from somebody and we went to jail, that's our gamma. Or if we steal things from people, we're pretty much going to be making other haphazard decisions in our life. And there's probably going to be people around us that are stealing from us, right? So stealing is going to cause harm. So therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. But this precept goes on a little bit further where it talks about accepting what is given. Okay, what it's talking about here is in a Buddhist society where people are practicing generosity, because generosity is a major practice in Buddhist teachings, is being generous and offering things to people. When you're living in a Buddhist society where people are offering things regularly, and maybe even in your country or that is not a Buddhist society, people may be offering things to you. They're practicing generosity. If you didn't accept what is given, like somebody offered you something and you're like, no, 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 I don't need that. You're basically cutting off the relationship and you're kind of blocking this generosity that the person is attempting to practice. And it's not going to feel good for the other person who's making this offering with generosity. It's actually going to cause harm in your relationship. So this precept that is often translated as do not steal, it actually incorporates something extra which is accept what is given. So if somebody offers you something with generosity, just accept it without expectation, without judgment, right? Just accept it. It's also okay to now that you've accepted this to offer it to somebody else, right? In our culture, Western culture, we call that re-gifting, and that's a bad thing. But that's not how these teachings are looked at in a society where everybody's always giving things to everybody. Here in Thailand, when I go places, people are always giving me stuff, right? Partly because I'm a Buddhist teacher and I'm wearing all white, but also even before that, before I was teaching Buddhism and I was wearing all white, you would go places and people are just very generous all the time. Well, if people are always offering you things and you're like, no, 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 I don't want that. No, 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 I don't want that. People are eventually going to feel uncomfortable with this relationship because when they're trying to be generous and kind and polite to you, you're blocking their generosity. So part of what this precept is teaching you is if somebody offers you something, just accept it without judgment and without expectation. What it's also talking about here is awaiting what is given. Oftentimes when we're in relationships and there's a certain day coming up like a birthday or a holiday, we might start telling people things that we want. Or if one of your partners is going on travel somewhere, you might give them a list of things that you want them to bring you, kind of like your expectations based on your cravings, right? The things that you want. 
Well, this can actually be very detrimental for your relationships because you're setting an expectation with this individual of the things you want. And it puts pressure on them in order to acquire the things that you want. And now it creates effort for this person to have to go out and look for all of these things, spend money, spend time, spend energy to try to acquire the things that you want. So a person who's practicing these teachings very well is not going to ask for things from people. They're going to be awaiting what is given. So rather than going around asking everybody, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, that's going to put a lot of pressure and expectations on people. Now, of course, if you get into a situation where you need something, that's a completely different situation. Here in Thailand, if somebody asks you for something, you know that they must really need it, right? So I've lived in this village for about five or six years now. And I think I've only ever asked two or three times of my neighbors for something. One time I was transporting a motorbike from my house down to Bangkok and nobody was around. I was here all by myself. And I went to one of my neighbors and said, hey, can you help me put the motorbike in the back of my truck? That was like the first time I'd ever asked anybody of anything. But I really needed to do that because I was leaving in about 20 minutes and there was nobody that was going to be here to help me. And then a couple of months ago, right before one of these classes, our Wi-Fi went out, our internet went out. So I asked my neighbor if I could use his Wi-Fi because I really knew that there were people that needed to learn and his internet is right next to my house here. His house is right next to my house and I could hook into his Wi-Fi and it would be no problem. So we need to ensure that if we are asking for things from people that we should only do that when we actually truly need it. So what this precept isn't saying is it's not saying never ask anybody for anything, right? Sometimes people can look at this and they can go to one side, never ask anything for anybody, right? But that's not what the Buddha is saying. What he's saying is awaiting what is given, right? Don't be where you're just wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting things from people. You know, think about if you had a friend that was going around and always asking for things. I want this. 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 You wouldn't feel comfortable being around that person. So why would you do that to other people? So this precept is, of course, about not actively stealing from people, but it's also about accepting things when somebody offers something to you. And it's also about not asking for things from people erroneously and just awaiting what is given, okay? So let me pause here and see if there's any questions on this second precept. How about, David, in these situations where you know the other person would be willing to give you something, but they just haven't offered it yet? It could be something small, like you know, maybe you're visiting someone's house, maybe some condiments or something. Or, or you know, maybe something slightly larger, like, can I have a sandwich? You know, you know they, they would be willing, and you both know that, but they haven't actually explicitly offered it. And maybe it is something, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of wanting there. There's probably a case to eliminate the craving, but maybe it is something you need. You know, maybe you're just really hungry, and like, you're not thinking clearly, and it would be a good decision to eat something. What about in those situations? Would that be not awaiting what is given to ask? That sounds more like a need to me than a want. 
right? If like, say I was visiting somebody really far out in the country, there's no stores around, there's no way for me to get delivery of food and I'm super hungry. Sure. I'm going to ask the host because they've invited me to their house. They would like to be a good host. I'm going to say, hey, could I maybe have some food, right? So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is just kind of ask them, right? You can say, hey, I'm feeling kind of hungry. I'm curious, are you feeling hungry? Maybe we should try to get some food somewhere, right? And then they might speak up and say, oh, you need food? I've got food in the kitchen. Why don't we go make ourselves a sandwich? So you can actually move in the direction of acquiring food without actually saying, hey, can I raid your refrigerator, right? But this is where you also have to kind of like balance the situation, right? Like if I was at my mom's house, my mom's no longer alive, but if I went to my mom's house and I was hungry, I wouldn't just sit there and wait for mom to offer me a sandwich, right? Me and mom are are close and I know I can go into a refrigerator and pop it open and have some food. But if I felt like I needed to ask, you know, if I haven't been to her house for four, five, six years, I might say, hey mom, do you mind if I grab some food, feeling a little bit hungry. So this is where you kind of have to feel this out and see where that middle is. Like Max, if Max invited me, I've never been to Max's house, but you know, I've known him for a year and a half. If Max, I was at your house, I wouldn't just jump into the refrigerator and start eating, right? I would either ask you if you were hungry, you know, is there a place where we can get food? You know, is there somewhere we can order food? So you have to kind of assess where you are in this relationship. And that's why the Buddhist teachings aren't black and white. What he's sharing with you is helping you to see that you shouldn't be this, you know, grabbing for things, you know, grasping for things from people and just wanting, 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 wanting that genuinely you should just await what is given and be appreciative of that. And if somebody does give you something, accept it and receive it. Right. So you have to evaluate this with wisdom and have good discernment. That's kind of underlying all these teachings is discernment, wise decision making. Got it. Thanks, David. All makes sense. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay, let's move on to the next one. And I needed two slides to talk about this one because this is a pretty big topic for most people. This one gets translated as no sexual misconduct. Okay, well, that is so vague. And if that's all anybody ever knew about this precept, you would be utterly in the dark about how to really practice this precept, because what is sexual misconduct? So that rudimentary translation is nothing close to what Gautama Buddha actually taught. What he taught is this right here. What he taught is abandoning unchastity, abandoning sexual relations with women, men who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister or relative who are protected by their Dhamma, who have a husband, wife or partner whose violation entails a penalty or even one who has been garlanded by a man, woman, or partner as a sign of engagement. Okay, so let's break this down. Okay, this is very detailed teaching. Abandoning unchastity. Chastity would be somebody who is not having sex, 
at all, pretty much, right? So unchastity would be someone who's going around with all kinds of multiple partners, having sex, you know, with any other person that they might encounter. So what he's saying here is abandon going around and having sex with lots and lots and lots of people. We know that if we went around and had sex with lots and lots and lots of people, there's harm there, right? There's harm in terms of sexually transmitted diseases, right? The Buddha doesn't say that in his teachings, but we can take what he's sharing with us and we can discern why would this cause harm, right? Not only does it cause harm with the potential of sexually transmitted diseases, but if you've ever been in a situation where you've had two, three, four, five different partners at one time, it really affects the mind. It really is difficult to be in relations with two, three, four, five, six different people at one time in that intimate way. It really plays havoc on the mind, creating a lot of discontentedness. This is your kama, that discontentedness, right? Maybe even the lying and cheating that you have to do behind people's backs to hide it from them so they don't know. Abandoning unchastity is not that the Buddha just wants everybody to stop having sex. What he's saying is this is going to cause people harm if you go around having lots of sex with people. Therefore, it's going to cause you harm too, right? These teachings aren't about controlling you and telling you what you can and can't do. What he's doing is giving you guidance with wisdom and saying, if you do this, it's going to cause others harm. So therefore, it's going to cause you harm. Whether you choose to do this or not, it's up to you. This is the practice. This is the guidance. If you're sleeping around with lots of different people and you get sexually transmitted diseases or your mind is discontent trying to hide this from everybody, this is the reason why. Because you haven't abandoned unchastity. Okay, Abandoning sexual relations with women or men who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister or some other relative. This is minors. If we had sex with a 12-year-old, 8-year-old, 14-year-old, we know that this is going to cause harm because this young being is being shaped and taught and brought into the world by their family. And there's lots of things that this young being needs to understand about the world. A intimate relationship with intercourse with somebody who's a minor living at home is going to cause harm to that minor. Therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. And that's why we have laws in most places in the world that outlaw this, because it's part of gamma. People don't realize that that are making these laws. But yeah, it causes harm in the world because these young beings are being taught. They're learning. They're trying to understand the world and going in with a deep, intimate relationship with an eight or 12 year old or some other child that's living at home. It's going to cause harm in the world. And this is why the larger part of society looks at these things and feels like it's not something that we should be doing as human beings. And that's why we frown on it in terms of society. And that's the gamma coming back to the person if they choose to have sex with somebody who's still living at home with their relatives. It's also a way of respecting your relatives too. Even if you're 18 or 20 years old and you're living at home, if you are having sex in your parents' house 
and they came home and knew about it, it's really not wise to do that. It's going to put strain and struggle on your relationship with your parents. You should have this type of conduct when you move out of your parents' house. That's the best way to ensure that you're protecting this relationship with your parents. Then he goes on here and he says, one who's protected by the Dhamma. Okay, what this means is somebody who's practicing celibacy. In order to attain enlightenment, in order to get to even the third or fourth stage, the last two stages of enlightenment, you would need to completely eliminate sexual contact. And you might not be ready to do that right now, which is fine. When or if you're ever ready to do that, I can help you with that and learn how to do that. But if somebody's practicing celibacy as part of attaining enlightenment, and we were to lure them away from that vow, from that commitment, from that teaching, that's going to cause harm to them because it's going to inhibit them from making progress on this path to enlightenment. And if we do that with this person, it's going to cause harm to them. Therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. Okay. And then he goes on here. He says, who have a husband, wife, or partner. I added in those because he was mainly speaking to men. So he's advising these men, you know, one who have a husband, but I added in wife or partner because these apply to everybody, whose violation entails a penalty. So if somebody's already committed, has a husband, wife, or partner, and we try to lure that person away and have sex with them, bad things are going to happen, right? Bad things are going to happen. If that gets found out, we're going to have all kinds of problems going on. There's going to be fights. There's going to be arguments. There's even been murders over people who have had sex with someone's husband or wife or partner, right? That's the unwholesome gamma that's coming to us. That's the outcome because we've chosen a partner who's already engaged in a relationship with a husband, wife, or partner. If we have sex with that person, it is causing harm. So therefore, harm will come to us. So a wise choice would be if you're going to choose a partner, choose someone who doesn't have any connection to any other husband, wife, or partner because the violation entails a penalty. The penalty is you might get in a fight, an argument, a physical battle. You might get murdered as part of that, right? And once again, there's sexually transmitted diseases theirs as well. And then conversely, if you lure this person away from their partner and now your intention is to make them your partner and now you're having sex with them and now they're your partner and let's just say they left that other person. Well, what's going to happen when someone tries to lure them away from you, right? Because if you were able to lure them away from somebody else, their behavior isn't going to change overnight. And if they made the choice to cheat on their partner with you, it's very likely that they're going to cheat on you with somebody else. So you're kind of entering into a relationship based on this individual being unloyal and unfaithful to their previous partner. So therefore, they're probably going to be unloyal and unfaithful to you as well. And that's your gamma that's coming back to you when they go out and they cheat on you, right? And then if you get really angry, hot-headed, and go out and argue and fight and murder somebody, you can end up in jail 
because of this decision you made to have sex with somebody, lure them away, and now they did the same thing to you, and now you ended up getting in a fight or killing the other person, and now you're in jail, right? This is your unwholesome karma based on your unwholesome decisions. And then the last part here is it talks about someone who's garlanded, right? Someone who's engaged to be married. All the same reasons, right? If somebody's engaged to be married and you pull them away from their partner, all the same situations can happen that I just discussed with that one, right? And then we can surmise, even though it's not in this particular precept laid out specifically, we can surmise from the Buddha's other teachings that there's other sexual contact that is going to cause harm. For example, sex without consent, right? If we rape somebody, if we didn't have their consent and we raped somebody, even though the Buddha doesn't talk about rape here, we know that raping someone is not a practice of right intention because right intention is harmlessness, non-ill will. So if we use our sexual conduct and our sexual activity to forcibly have sex with somebody without consent, that's going to cause harm. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. And then also sex with people who are human trafficked, right? That's not included in this precept, but we can take from right livelihood of the Eightfold Path where the Buddha talks about the five wrong livelihoods. And one of those five is livelihoods that involve living beings, right? So if someone's being human trafficked, that means there's unwholesome things that are happening. And if we have sex with that person, once again, it's going to cause harm. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So we need to ensure that when we're having sex, that we're doing so with one partner at a time, that it's in a loyal, committed relationship. And when we're done with that relationship, finish that relationship and then move on to another relationship. And that's the best way to ensure we're not causing harm with our sexual contact. This precept, I also go on in this book and I talk about some other things to help you further understand this precept further. Even though the Buddha didn't go into detail on this, we can obviously understand this through this precept. Sometimes people think about same-sex partners and people are curious of whether that's problematic or not. Well, ask yourself, if there's two loving, consenting adults that are having sexual relationship with each other, two men or two women, and they're in a loyal, committed relationship, consenting to have sex with each other, are they harming anyone? Ask yourself, are they harming anyone? Well, one person is agreeing to have sex with this person, and this person is agreeing to have sex with the other person. Who's getting harmed in this scenario? The answer that I get back is nobody. Nobody's being harmed there because it's a loyal, consenting relationship where two loving people are in a loyal, committed relationship and they're having sex with each other. That doesn't harm anyone. And as you see here in this precept, the Buddha doesn't go into explaining that two people being together of the same gender is causing any harm. The Buddha was aware of people who preferred same-sex relationships. He even talks in his teachings 
about people who are born into masculine bodies or male bodies whose mind don't identify with masculine qualities. And he talks in his teachings about people who are born into female bodies who are not identifying with the mind of the female body. So we can have a female body identifying with male qualities in the mind. And we can have a male physical body with a mind that is identifying more feminine. We call this in our modern day society, we call it transgender. And when he talks about this in his teachings, he just mentions it. He doesn't even have any teachings around it. He just says to one of his students, he says, I'll kind of paraphrase. He says, oh, by the way, there's males who are born into male bodies, but their mind doesn't identify with masculine qualities. And there's people who are born into female bodies and their mind doesn't identify with female qualities. That's it. He just identifies that it exists. So he was well aware of it. So if he thought that there is anything wrong with same-sex partners or transgender individuals, he would have put that in the precept. And if you understand the cycle of rebirth and you understand impermanence, then you understand transgender. Because the cycle of rebirth, if you understand this, we've been countless beings in our past. We've been lizards and snakes and pigs and horses and cows and maybe even previous humans. And in those various births, we were different genders. So when you land into this human body, if you have male sexual organs, but your mind identifies with the feminine qualities, that's completely normal. It's completely normal because the mind and the body are two different things and them identifying with different genders is completely normal. And conversely, if you have a female body and the mind identifies with a masculine qualities, it's completely normal because all of us have been various genders in the past. So those genders aren't going to necessarily sync up in this particular life. And then conversely, if you understand in permanence that there is no steady fixed state, that everything's always constantly changing and there's no such thing as permanence, then you understand that every single male body doesn't have a mind that identifies with male qualities because that would be permanence. But the universal truth is impermanence. So if you understand impermanence and you understand the cycle of rebirth and you look at the transgender community, then you know that what's going on there is completely normal based on all of these universal truths and all of these natural laws of existence that Gautama Buddha taught. So there's no harm in same gender partners in a loving, consenting relationship with each other. So therefore, there's no harm with that. And same thing if somebody is transgender, that's completely normal. And then lastly, I'll talk about masturbation because a lot of people in the world will oftentimes teach that masturbation is immoral and it shouldn't be done and you're harming something or other. Well, you should be getting good now at looking at the natural law of gamma. It's always about cause and effect, action and result. If you're causing harm to others, harm is going to come to you. So if somebody chooses to masturbate, are they harming someone else? 
The answer is no, because there's no one else involved, right? If someone's masturbating, it's a sole practice. It's just one person, right? They're pleasing themselves sexually through masturbation. So therefore, they're not causing harm to anyone else. So therefore, no harm is going to come to them based on masturbating, okay? With that said, they're not causing harm to others, but masturbation can become a craving, desire, attachment where the mind is discontent if it doesn't have it. So the mind can become addicted to it and you can actually harm your own mind if you become addicted to it and you start having these cravings. So masturbation isn't all right and it's not all wrong either. It's about being in the middle. It's not all wrong because you're not harming anybody, but it's not all right because you're also going to be causing craving in the mind. But there's this middle where you could actually use masturbation to actually help you. If you're on this path and you've learned now that having multiple partners is going to cause a lot of problems in your life, and right now you've got three or five different sexual partners, well, that sexual craving that you have isn't going to just go away. But if you're consciously making choices to modify your sexual conduct and bring your sexual life down to just one partner, well, you're still gonna probably have some excess sexual craving. And as you do, if you choose to use masturbation as a way to dissipate that and extinguish that and eliminate that as a way of helping you come into just one partner and have just one partner, then that can be a very healthy practice to help you come down and bring your mind down to where you're able to just have one healthy sexual relationship. So if you're masturbating or you've masturbated in the past, you didn't hurt anybody. It's not immoral. It's just how do you use it? Are you using it as a way of bringing your sexual life into line with just having one partner? Or are you using it excessively where it's now going to cause you harm because when you don't have it, your mind is going to be craving it so much that your mind is discontent. So it's important that you always look at harm. Is there any harm here? Because if there's harm that your action of sexual conduct is creating, that harm is going to come back to you. So let's pause here and see what questions you guys have. We have a question from Judith. My friend is disabled and felt bad that when she's sick, her husband would miss beautiful experiences of life. So they both decide to go together and date people so there can be a third person in the relationship. They both seem equally happy. Would this be unchastity? It's unchastity. And while they may be consciously agreeing to that and thinking that that's a wise choice, what they're going to find, and they may even already be finding this, is that relationship is never going to be the same. It's never going to have the connectiveness, the faithfulness, the trust that they could have if it was just them in the relationship and them only. Even when both people agree for another person to enter into the relationship, whether it's one person or two people, or there's like some people who will have multiple partners, like the swinging lifestyle that we have in the world today, what you will find even when both partners agree to it is that relationship will never quite be the same unless 
they bring their sexual life more in line with these teachings where it's just them two only. So it is going to cause them harm. They just may not be seeing that harm right now. And it can slowly erode the relationship. We have another question from Judith. Is celibacy something that eventually comes naturally? Is this a natural development? It can be. You know, some people take a real active role in extinguishing their sexual contact and they kind of really actively attack it because they feel like it's time for them to eliminate their sexual craving. But then other people might take a more casual approach to it and allow the sexual craving to naturally extinguish. And if you're one of those kind of people where like right now where you are on the path, you might be really enjoying sex. It might be something that you really enjoy. It's something that you and your partner, it bonds you. It brings you closer together. Depending on what your age is, you may not have even had children yet and you may choose that you would like to have children someday. So you might not choose to actively extinguish your sexual craving at this point in your life, but there's plenty of other teachings on this path for you to address and learn and develop before you ever get to the point where you may choose to extinguish your sexual craving. The sexual craving is part of what we call the central desire. And you can actually attain the first and second stage of enlightenment while still having sexual contact. So there's enough to learn between the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the meditation, the 10 fetters, and all the other things we're going to teach in this program, that that's going to take quite a while, several years for people to really kind of learn and develop and train the mind in that direction. But then at some point in the future, as you move into the first and second stage of enlightenment, wow, your life's going quite well in that first and second stage of enlightenment. And you've got one loyal partner and you guys are enjoying your sexual life together. But at some point, you may both decide that you would like to move towards extinguishing this craving, or it may just extinguish naturally. It may just be something that kind of naturally extinguishes over time. So everybody approaches it differently, but it's typically something that's much later on the path. There's some people now that might start the path, have never really been into sex, And they're like, you know what? I can give it up. It's not a big deal. I'm not even interested in it. But there's other people who really enjoy it and they still have that craving. And this might be something you naturally extinguish later or you may choose to actively decide to extinguish it. But how you do that or if you do that is completely up to you. And that's why in these teachings, there is no judgment whatsoever. If someone chooses to have sex for their entire life, that's their choice. And there's no judgment or expectation from a teacher that everybody has to extinguish sex today. It's all about being an independent journey. And everybody chooses as they progress on this path, when is the time or is there even a time that I'm going to choose to extinguish sex or become vegan or any of these other teachings. Because remember the Buddhist teachings, it's like a ceiling and everybody's kind of striving to get to that. But it's going to take many years to do that. And when and if you choose to do that is completely your choice. Most people will probably extinguish sexual contact naturally over the course of their life. But if somebody would like to more actively pursue enlightenment 
and actively extinguish their sexual craving, you can actually do that as well. There's ways to do that and there's special meditations that we use in order to help people actively eliminate their sexual craving. Judith has a follow-up. She asks, why do they say that life force is sexual energy? Did the Buddha teach anything like that? The Buddha never taught anything like that. So you'd have to ask those people you know, what they say. Like I mentioned, if you move into the first or second stage of enlightenment and you're still having sex, your life's going to be quite wonderful in that first and second stage of enlightenment. And then at some point in your life, if you choose to go the rest of the way, then you'll know what the path is because that's what I'm teaching you and you'll have my guidance to help you. And you can choose when or if you would like to extinguish sexual contact at some point in the future. We have a comment from Javier. I think it'd be good to get your thoughts on this one, David. Okay. He said, medical advice for men is to have often sexual activity to prevent prostate cancer. Good to know these teachings aren't against it. Was that that medical people are saying you should have sex often to guard against prostate cancer? That's right. I've also heard the same thing myself about testicular cancer. So interested to know your thoughts there. Yeah, I'm not a medical professional, but I don't know that that's necessarily the truth. You know, Gautama Buddha stopped having sex by the time he was 35 and he lived until 80 years old. You know, I don't know that that's necessarily true. We have to understand that while we need to pay attention to science and we need to ensure that we heave the advice of scientists, we have to also understand that science is not permanent, that there are certain things that we learn about the human body all the time. Today, there might be a group of doctors who say having sex often helps with testicular cancer and prostate cancer. But there might be another group of doctors that completely disagree with that, another group of scientists. So science doesn't always necessarily agree with it. I can tell you that these teachings are the truth. And I don't feel that by giving up sex, I'm putting myself at any risk of testicular cancer or prostate cancer. I can see the truth that by giving up sexual activity and sexual contact, the mind is completely free of discontentedness, along with all the other things that I needed to practice as part of this path. So I have no concerns about any type of cancers or any kind of negative health effects related to not having sex. Yes, Javier has followed up and says, it's a risk factor, I think. And I think to touch on what you just said, David, it may well be a risk factor in some cases, but it doesn't mean that cancer is caused by a lack of sexual activity, right? It could be caused by something else. Sure. Uh, I'm just going to get that into account as well. Well, by the time you get to enlightenment, which includes giving up sexual contact, you will observe that the mind is so utterly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. I know this is going to sound strange, but it's more enjoyable and a better mental state than anything that you'll experience through any kind of sex. Because sex, while it's enjoyable and it feels wonderful, it's still temporary. It's still impermanent, where the mental state of enlightenment is permanent. That might be hard for a 20-year-old or 25-year-old to hear. I know if I was 20, 25-year-old that I would just be like, ah, forget that. You know, I don't agree with that. But you won't know until you experience it. And when or if you choose to ever give up sexual contact is your choice. 
But what you will notice, and you've probably experienced this, is that there's been times in your life where your mind craved sexual contact, and when you didn't get it, it was discontent. Or even you got sexual contact, and it wasn't gratifying enough, and you left the experience unsatisfied. This is the discontentness of the mind. So through maintaining sexual contact and sexual relationship, your mind is still going to experience discontentedness. There's nothing wrong with sex by itself. It's not immoral. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It's just that it does cause the mind to be discontent. And that's why the Buddhist teachings aren't about what's right and what's wrong. There's nothing wrong with sexual contact. It's just that a mind that still has craving for sexual contact is going to experience discontentedness. And that's what the Buddhist teaching, not as part of this precept, but once we look at the 10 fetters, that's where we understand that sexual contact will cause the mind to be discontent at some point if there's craving there. So that's why it's important to make that distinction that Gautama Buddha's teachings aren't about what's right or wrong. It's about what causes the mind to be discontent. We have a question from Sue. If one partner chooses to become celibate and the other person does not, this could cause significant problems in a relationship. Would this be creating bad karma? It can certainly cause problems in a relationship. Choosing not to have sex by itself is not going to cause bad karma because you're not harming anyone by choosing not to have sex. Now, it could injure relationship with that person potentially. So it's a wise decision if you're choosing to end your sexual relationship to have discussions with that person and make sure they're on board with it. So that's a wise choice. But just choosing not to have sex with somebody isn't going to cause anything harmful because there's no action to actually cause harm. So therefore, no harm is going to come to you. So in my situation, my wife and I both decided that we aren't going to have sex anymore. We talked about it. We discussed it. And we came to the same conclusion that we've done that enough and we've experienced with each other and other people enough that we can let it go. And it's not an important part of our relationship. And what I found is our relationship is actually deeper now, having given up sexual relationship, because now we're with each other because we just truly enjoy being with each other. We don't want anything from each other. We can truly practice true love, which is unconditional love. There's no conditions on our love whatsoever. We're in a relationship as husband and wife and partners, not because we want something from each other, but because we truly enjoy living life together and supporting each other as life partners. We sleep in different rooms. We have a wonderful relationship. We don't come to each other for sex or needing of sex. We don't go to other partners. And we've decided that that's perfectly content and our mind's perfectly peaceful with that. And what I found is that it's actually deepened our relationship. Had you told me that I was going to do that five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, whatever, even two years ago, I would have probably never told you that I was going to end up in the situation where I was interested in giving up sex at this point in my life. But having done so and seeing the effect that it has on our relationship, it's been a very rewarding decision that's actually resulted in us having a much deeper relationship where we don't cause harm to each other. 
Because there's always times in a relationship where one partner wants sex and the other one doesn't. And now if you don't give sex, then there's discontentedness and arguing. Or if you choose to give it and you're not really into it, then it doesn't really result in a good outcome. So this whole sexual relationship, while it can be pleasing and enjoyable, it does cause discontentedness in relationships. You will need to choose when or if you ever choose to let that go. But if you're in a relationship where there is sex and you're choosing to let it go, it's a wise choice to sit down and talk with your partner. Maybe it's going to take several conversations before you make that decision. If both of you guys are on this path and you're both progressing on this path, you might actually see the benefit in eliminating sexual relation and sexual contact, you know, similarly at a similar time, the way that my wife and I did, we kind of came to that conclusion on our own individually so that when we actually talked about it, it was like, yeah, no brainer. We've both already kind of decided that individually anyway. But if one partner's on the path and one partner's not, that makes it a lot more challenging to have that conversation because this other partner might not see the value and understand why that's important. So at one point in the book in chapter 14, I talk about how it actually really helps if you're in a relationship to have you and your partner and your entire family learning and practicing these teachings together so that you can support each other through this path. Thank you, David. We have no more questions. Okay, let's go to the fourth precept. The fourth precept is usually translated as do not lie. Okay, there's a lot more meaning here in Gautama Buddha's words than just do not lie. This is the difference of studying the true pure teachings of a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha versus looking at a GIF or a JPEG on social media that just lists out a couple of precepts. When you read the teachings of the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, you're going to get much more meaning. And this is one of the reasons why it's helpful to have a teacher who's really dedicated to the path because they're going to have the true real teachings of the Buddha. And that's what I'm sharing with you here. And you can glean much more meaning out of the Buddha's words. What he actually says is not do not lie, because that's obvious. You know, most of us understand that. But what he's saying is abandoning false speech, refrain from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Okay, so if we go around lying to people all the time, those people are going to figure out that we're lying. And we're going to have a hard time in our personal and professional relationships. It's going to be difficult for us for people to look at us as dependable and trustworthy. It's going to be hard for us to advance in our career. It's going to be hard for us to have personal relationships because the only people that are going to want to be around us are other people who lie. So people are going to be lying to us all the time as well. So we're not going to be able to create wholesome personal and professional relationships where we're advancing in our career if we're telling lies, if we're gossiping, if we're slandering, if we're talking with deceit. Talking with deceit is like hiding the truth. Like we know the truth, but we don't really say what it is. We don't really say the real truth. We kind of hide it, right? So what we're looking for is not to just not lie. We're looking to not gossip. 
not to slander, not to talk with deceit, right? If we know the truth, don't hide that. Tell the full truth. Because in doing so, then we will be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. When you open your mouth, people will know you're someone to be trusted. You're someone that can be relied on. And this is good, wholesome choices that is going to result in good, wholesome results for you. Because in your personal and professional life, if people become accustomed to you only ever telling the truth, then people are going to look at you as being trustworthy, dependable, someone that they can really rely on. Because every time you open your mouth, it's always the truth, especially if you're speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech. Gautama Buddha understood this natural law of gamma by harming through false speech so well that he goes on in his teachings and he explains this to his son. A lot of people think he left his family and never came back, but he actually came back and he spent time with his family and they actually became students of his. Here's what he says. He understood gamma so, so well. Even so hollow and empty, Rahula, which is his son, is this recluseship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train yourself thus. I will not utter a falsehood even as a joke. Right? So even when he tells jokes, the Buddha is speaking the truth so that people get utterly used to Every time he speaks, it's always the truth that he's dependable. He's trustworthy. He's not a deceiver of the world. Because if you tell a deliberate lie, what the Buddha is saying is there's no evil that you're not willing to do. Because you're causing this harm through your speech and lying, there's other evils that you're also willing to do. And there's people in the world that you're probably familiar with that as they lie and as they talk with gossip and slander and they disparage other people, there's lots of other evils that those people are willing to do as well. And personal and professional relationships are going to steer clear of that person. And you don't want to be that person. So ensure that your speech is always trustworthy, dependable. Make sure that you're always speaking the truth, even when you tell a joke. It's actually more challenging to tell a trustworthy joke and it'll challenge your mind to be wiser and wiser, to tell jokes. And those are actually usually the better jokes, the real witty and jokes that come from real wisdom where there's no lie. It challenges you to be more wise in telling those jokes. So ensure that your speech is always the truth. No gossip, no slander, no deceit always working to be trustworthy and dependable of all people. So any questions on this one? We have a question from Shizal. What about lies spoken for someone's good? Is that bad too? That is bad too, because you're still lying. And not only do people learn that you're lying and then they don't trust you, but the mind is burdened by these lies. Because when you start telling lies into the world, you now have to start sorting out who you told what to. And this burdens the mind. 
and it keeps the mind in a position where you're carrying around this burden. It carries around stress. One of the things that Gautama Buddha talks about when he talked about enlightenment is he says enlightenment is like laying down the burden. He also uses the words laying down the stress. Well, if you're always telling the truth always and forever, then you never have to turn the wheels in the mind to figure out who you said what to who and make sure you sort all this out. That's going to really burden the mind. What you're doing through enlightenment is you're liberating the mind so that the mind can have this freedom, right? That's what enlightenment is. We call it liberation of the mind. Well, if you're going around lying to people, your mind's not going to be liberated because it's going to be burdened and stressed because you've told lies into the world. And that's going to be your gamma. Because you've lied, even though you think you're doing good, you've lied. So therefore, there's going to be a burden and people aren't going to trust you and you're going to find it difficult to have relationships. So I presume, David, this very much includes what you might call white lies. So little lies, even with the intention to help someone feel better or protect their feelings is still very much in the same category. Yes, exactly. There's no reason to tell any lie whatsoever in the world. It's only going to cause you problems. Your mind is going to be burdened by it. You're going to be stressed by it. People are going to discover your lies and you're going to end up damaging relationships that are otherwise very perfect and very wonderful. There's no reason to lie in the world. I think that's quite clear cut. We do have a follow-up from Chital. She says, I have heard that a lie spoken to save someone's life is not even a lie. And she did also have a follow-up question, but it came in before. I'll ask it anyway. And what about the little lie spoken to avoid drama? I think you've pretty much covered that. Yeah. What you'll find is what this practice is about is this practice is about acquiring wisdom and having wisdom and being able to use that wisdom to conduct your daily life. If you're reverting to lies, then you're not using your mind and your wisdom to make good choices in life. I've been practicing this precept very, very closely for a very long period of time, and I find that there's no reason to lie whatsoever. It might require you at this point in your life to think. It may require you to look at things may require you to take your time a little bit and think things through. But in doing so, your mind's going to become wiser and wiser and you will make wiser and wiser choices. So there's no reason to lie. It's just going to require you to work a little bit, build your wisdom, and then figure out ways to speak and talk to people in ways that conducts daily life and gets the things done that you need to get done in the world without actually lying because the lying is going to cause you problems and you're never going to attain enlightenment as long as you're lying. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, so let's go to the very last precept, which deals with substances that cause heedlessness. This is usually translated as do not take intoxicants. But what you're going to hear here is there's never a black and white and the word intoxicant isn't the proper word that we should be using to understand this precept. The precept is 
Refrain from strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, the basis for heedlessness. It's important to understand this word heedlessness. What heedlessness means is careless, thoughtless, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, or unmindful. Okay? Remember, this path to enlightenment is all about purification of the mind. Purifying the mind, training the mind, and eliminating the burden that the mind carries around so that you can have this pure mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So if you're purifying this mind to not be craving and longing and having this strong eagerness for things, why would we put substances into the body that causes carelessness, thoughtlessness, inattentiveness, uncalmness, unawareness, or unmindfulness? Because mindfulness is awareness of mind. And there are certain substances that we put into the body that causes us to not be aware of the mind. This whole path is all about being aware of the mind so that we can actively train it to eliminate unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities. So if we're putting substances into the body that's causing unalertness or unawareness of the mind, then how can we ever purify the mind because we're not aware of it? We can't practice right mindfulness, for example. So a person who's on this path, if they choose to eliminate these from their life, then what you're going to find is you're going to have more awareness of mind. So therefore, you have more ability to eliminate certain qualities and cultivate certain qualities. And then likewise, if somebody chooses to take substances that cause heedlessness, then what you're going to find is you're going to find life's going to be very, very difficult for you. Because if you don't have awareness of mind in the choices that you're making, you're going to be more likely to kill. You're going to be more likely to steal. You're going to be more likely to commit sexual misconduct. You're going to be more likely to lie. So by putting pollution and poison into the body that pollutes the mind, then you're less likely to practice all these other good, wholesome precepts that are leading you to eliminate unwholesome, unwise decision-making. So this precept is utterly important because you're causing harm to yourself by taking these substances, and then you're going to start making choices in the world that causes harm to others. And we know that if you go talk to people who are incarcerated in jail, they might be there for robbing a bank, or they might be there for murder, or they might be there for stealing a car. But if you sit down and talk with people, probably a good 80% or 90% of them will tell you that it was really the substances, the substance abuse that led to all this other behavior that landed them in jail, right? Because these substances wreak havoc in our life, not only based on our conduct, but it also affects our physical body, our liver, our other organs in our body, our skin, our hair, our eyes. It starts affecting the physical body. There's even people who have gotten so high or so drunk that they walk out in front of cars and they get killed, right? Or they drive and they kill other people or they drive and kill themselves, right? So having substances in the body that's causing heedlessness is going to lead to a whole litany of other problems. There is no substance in the world 
that is going to produce a permanent mind that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It doesn't come through these substances. These substances are essentially someone chasing after pleasant feelings in order to cover up painful feelings potentially. But then once those substances wear off, you're right back into the painful feelings. And usually the painful feelings are worse at that point. So choosing not to ingest substances that cause heedlessness is going to significantly move your practice forward. But then we need to look at things like marijuana. Marijuana is a substance that we know has medical benefits. There's absolutely no contesting that someone who has 20 seizures a day takes a little bit of marijuana oil and then they don't have a seizure for six months. There's no refuting that, that there's some kind of medical benefit there. But the interesting thing about marijuana is there's something called THC and something called CBD. THC is the part of the plant that causes the high, the heedlessness. CBD is the part of the plant that has the medical benefits. So if we are interested in the true medical benefits of marijuana, for example, those people will typically move to looking for an oil that has really high CBD, and they wanna ingest it usually with an oil or some other type of way of ingesting it. Oftentimes, people who are looking for the high are gonna go for the THC, and they may be smoking it or ingesting it in some other way. Only you know, if you choose to take marijuana, what are your purpose? If your purpose is heedlessness, it's going to cause harm in your life. And it's important to understand too that some of the medical benefits that people are talking about with marijuana is that it helps with depression or anxiety or things like this. But what you need to understand is those are temporary solutions. Depression, sadness, anxiety, you can actually solve all of that naturally without any substances through Gautama Buddha's teachings and training of the mind. So if you're finding yourself taking marijuana for some mental concern, like depression or anxiety or stress, those aren't true medical conditions that are going to be cured by marijuana. You're just kind of covering it up. So if you move away from the marijuana and move into learning why the mind is truly sad, why it's depressed, why it's got anxiety, why it's got stress, when you start learning that through these teachings, you can actually completely eradicate and eliminate those feelings in the mind through these natural teachings of training the mind. You won't need marijuana to do that. But like I mentioned, there are situations where people have seizures and other issues that having a CBD oil can be really helpful to address those medical issues. But if you're smoking marijuana, that smoke is going into your lungs and it's damaging your physical body. And that's your karma because of your choice of smoking the marijuana. So if you choose to go down this path of using marijuana for medical issues, make sure you have a very valid medical reason and make sure that you ingest it in a way that's not going to cause harm to the physical body. Cigarettes are nothing but drugs. There's no benefit to smoking cigarettes. Anybody who smokes cigarettes, they're not going to attain enlightenment because they're still craving desire attachment there and they're causing harm to their physical body. 
they're not only causing harm to their physical body, but the smell that oftentimes comes with that, it makes it hard for them to have personal and professional relationships. And if they're smoking around other people, their secondhand smoke is causing harm to the people around them, perhaps their children or their life partners or other people as well. So it's important that people realize that in order to attain enlightenment, you need to move away from cigarettes. Same thing with caffeine. Caffeine is something that is a stimulant. It's going to affect the mind and it's going to cause uncommonness, unawareness, unmindfulness. It causes heedlessness. Just like with other things we've talked about, you might not be ready to give up caffeine right at this moment. However, as you progress on this path and you make your way further and further down the path, what you're going to realize is as the mind becomes more and more pure, you're going to realize that even caffeine affects the mind and causes it to be unmindful. And when you purge this caffeine out of the body, the mind's going to become more and more pure where you can have better awareness of mind. And if you decide to purge caffeine out of your diet, what you're going to notice is you're going to go through withdrawal symptoms, just like with any other drug. You might have shaking limbs. You might have headaches. You might have nausea. You might have other feelings like this. And let that remind you that you're absolutely detoxing from a drug, that even though it's legal, caffeine is going to produce unmindfulness, unalertness, unawareness, uncommonness. If you've ever had a good deal of caffeine and you've been involved in conversations, you might be chattering so fast that you realize that you said things that you didn't really mean to say. And because of that, it damages a relationship that you've had. And that's back to your decision of ingesting caffeine. You might also realize that once you start taking caffeine and your mind gets in this excited feelings, that when you don't have caffeine, the mind drops off and feels very sad, kind of empty, may even have anxiety, right? So this caffeine is kind of playing with the mind of this up and down, up and down, up and down, and you can't really ever see the true feelings that are in the mind to train the mind and purify the mind through these teachings. So it's only when you fully get away from caffeine that you're going to be able to see the true mind and the true feelings that are in the mind to be able to purify it. So if you get to a point in your practice where you feel it's the appropriate time to wean yourself off of caffeine, I suggest you do that gradually. And the sooner the better, truthfully, perhaps you might want to move to like a soda that doesn't have caffeine, or you might want to move to like a tea and then kind of spacing that out further and further so that you can just slowly, gradually ease the body and ease the mind off of this caffeine. During that time, you're probably going to feel very tired and very drowsy because the body and the mind isn't used to being without caffeine and you're detoxing from the caffeine. But once you get it completely out of your system, you will actually rebound. There's kind of like this dip down where you feel really lethargic, but then you'll kind of rebound after that. And you're going to feel that you actually get more energy, more alertness, more mental astuteness from purging this caffeine out of your system. And then lastly, these psychedelic substances like LSD, like mushrooms, like other substances, I think it's called ayahuasca, or Max will know how to pronounce it. 
there are certain substances that people take for psychedelic reasons. And there's kind of like a rumor and a myth that these things are going to actually help you to get to enlightenment, right? But essentially what these psychedelic substances are doing is, sure, they're giving you this deep introspection where you can actually look at the mind in very unique ways that you weren't able to do in the unenlightened state. But those feelings are temporary. There's no permanent change there. There's no psychedelic substance that's going to eliminate craving, anger, ignorance, unknowing of true reality, the self and the ego. In order to attain enlightenment, there are no shortcuts. There's absolutely no shortcuts. Everybody has to do the work and apply the effort in order to attain enlightenment. These psychedelic substances, while they're interesting and it can kind of show some things to you in the mind, it's not going to create any permanent wisdom that's going to ultimately eradicate what you need to eradicate from the mind. And it's not going to cultivate what you need to cultivate in the mind to create enlightenment. You can get to this mental state without any substance that's external. And if you chose to ingest these substances, once again, they're going to cause harm. There's people who go on these trips with psychedelic substances and they never come back in terms of the mind becomes very schizophrenic or you can also even get into problematic situations where you might end up walking in front of a car or damaging the physical body. You might even damage or harm somebody else. There's people who have murdered or killed or stolen or done other harmful things that have led to long lasting consequences because of their decision to take these psychedelic substances. So if you eliminate this stuff, you can then see the pure mind and the pure thoughts, train the mind to get to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you practice these five precepts in their entirety, it's going to significantly knock down the unwholesome choices and unwholesome decisions that you're making, i.e. it's going to significantly reduce your unwholesome gamma production. So let me pause here and see if there's any questions on this fifth precept. Uh, yeah, just add a bit there about the psychedelics. I think the, the one you were thinking of there was ayahuasca, which is yep. called often a plant-based medicine. So some people consider this to be a kind of medicine that it can, as they say, help you see where the mind is still attached, essentially what it's still holding on to. What would you say to that, David? What's your view on psychedelics as a potential medicine to help one see where their attachments are? There's ways to train the mind to do this without substances. If we're relying on substances to give us some kind of insight, then there's not the wisdom there to discover these things on your own. So in order to get to enlightenment, there's lots of attachments that you're going to have to uncover along the way. If every single time you're going to a substance to try to expose that to you, then you haven't gained the wisdom that you need in order to truly get to enlightenment. The way to liberate the mind is to acquire wisdom. That wisdom is what's going to liberate the mind. So let's just say you used some kind of substance all the way through to uncover certain attachments in the mind, then you've never gained the wisdom of how to do that on your own. So therefore, you haven't and you won't be able to attain enlightenment because you don't have the wisdom you need to liberate the mind and get it to enlightenment. So 
it's not possible to use a substance to shortcut or gain enlightenment any quicker because what you're doing is you're relying on the substance and that temporary experience rather than developing the wisdom that you would need to guide your own mind and train it to get to enlightenment. Sure, and encountering our attachments can be very uncomfortable whether or not there's some kind of substance involved. The important thing is that we work to eliminate the attachment and the substance has nothing to do with that. It, it may be showing us something, but it may actually just show us something that ends up causing some kind of further trauma and then come out of it and actually may be potentially more confused or more in pain or more attached. If someone can't identify their own cravings, desires, attachments, or they don't have a teacher to help them do that, then they're really not taking this path seriously because they don't understand what craving, desire, attachment is, and they're not gaining the wisdom that they would need to really transcend them. I mean, there's thousands of attachments that they're going to have as they're making their way to enlightenment. So any kind of substance they're not gaining the wisdom that they would need to identify what these craving, desire, attachments are. And that substance is just tricking their mind, making them think that they're making some progress. In reality, they're actually reverting and walking closer to the darkness rather than gaining the wisdom that they need to walk toward the light. We have a question from Shital. What about prescription medicines? A lot of psychiatric medicines have sedative effects. Yeah, what I have found is that the psychiatric field has a lot of medications that can cause harm. And there's a lot of people in the world that think that there's a defective brain, that the chemicals aren't being produced properly, and therefore it's a defective brain and you need to take this medication. What I found is that that's not true in all cases that you can actually train the mind to eliminate sadness, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, a lot of these psychiatric conditions that people are taking medicine for nowadays can be remedied through these teachings. What people are misunderstanding is that there's no pill that can eliminate sadness. There's no pill that can create wisdom in the mind of what a craving and desire attachment is and how to eliminate that. There's no pill that's gonna teach you how to practice right speech. There's no pill that's gonna teach you these good wholesome teachings. Myself and a good number of students who are studying with me have taken away their medication and gotten rid of their medication based on learning and practicing these teachings and stabilizing the mind through training the mind. So there's a lot of misunderstanding of true reality in the world today around mental health because these teachings right here are not pervasive in the world. So therefore, there's a lot of people that have been led to believe that sadness is an illness or they've been led to believe that anxiety is an illness. They've been led to believe that suicidal thoughts is an illness. But in reality, these are untrained minds that don't understand the wisdom of these teachings. And the mind hasn't been trained in such a way to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. If these teachings and as these teachings become more available in the world, 
there's millions of people who are going to be able to come off of medications because they can learn these good wholesome teachings and train the mind and actually get to real permanent stability of mind that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But there's also lots of people in the world that aren't interested in that ever happening because there's certain greed and profit associated with the mental health industry. So if you happen to learn these teachings and you've got a teacher and you learn these and you're on medications now, you will see that as you slowly, gradually learn these and you train the mind and get more stability, you'll be able to eliminate your medications, which eliminates that substance that you're putting in the body that's harming the physical body and harming the mind. And it also means that you're going to be able to eliminate an enormous amount of expense through all the doctor visits, through the medications, through all the treatments, because you'll be able to treat your own mind. The medicine that people need for the mind is not all of these pharmaceuticals and chemicals. The medicine that people need is meditation. Meditation is the medication that's going to solve the problem of sadness, anger, frustration, anxiety, stress, depression, suicidal thoughts, all of these with someone who's using the medication of meditation, all of these get eliminated through training the mind with these teachings. Okay, we have a question from Joy. She asks, caffeine does not seem to stimulate me. I don't get excited feelings. I think it counters the antidepressants that make me sleepy. I have no true feelings. Can I wait to move away from caffeine when I feel like I can move away from medications? It seems complicated to me. I'm on six or seven meds for pain, mental health, and other things. I feel like this is a long journey and not something I'm going to be able to change in a couple of months. Exactly. This is a long journey. It's a life practice. You're developing a life practice. When or if you get to working on any of these things, that's your choice of when you choose to do this. What I found when I was on psychotropic medication and mental health medication is that I decided to eliminate the caffeine first because I realized that that was actually the problem, one of the major problems, because I was taking an enormous amount of medications to sleep every night and to try to get to sleep, as well as daily medications as well. And when I got rid of the caffeine, what I noticed is I was able to fall asleep, right? I was taking all these medications because my mind was down in this sadness and sometimes up too excited and needed to take medications to sleep that it was actually the caffeine that was making this bouncing. So if I was you, I would get rid of the caffeine before you get rid of the psychiatric medication. Because if you get rid of the psychiatric medication and you keep the caffeine, the caffeine's gonna keep your mind bouncing all over the place. I would get rid of the caffeine first if I was you because there's really no need for it. One of the reasons why you probably feel like it's not affecting you very much right now is probably because your body and your mind has become so accustomed to it, right? You've built up a tolerance for it. When you start weaning it out of your body and you experience headaches or shaking or sweating or anything that's going on with your mind, this is an indication for you that you're detoxing from a drug. So it's good to get rid of the caffeine, I feel, first before you get rid of the psychiatric medication. 
Okay, we have a few more questions. I think we should take one more, David, and then maybe the others take offline. There's sure. some more general questions as well. Sure. So I'll go for this one more question from Joy. She says, there are more natural types of substances like turmeric that people take for pain, or even multivitamins and herbal remedies for sharpening focus, etc. One of my sons takes melatonin to help him sleep, a natural substance. Are these okay? Also, my son does not ingest coffee or soda. His autism seems to keep him awake. For me, I don't see any need to have melatonin. If there's someone who's taking melatonin, it means that their mind is not calm and peaceful. They haven't trained their mind and they're relying on this substance to try to produce sleep. So I don't think your son's learning and practicing these teachings, but if he learns and practices these teachings and trains his mind, he can get to the point where he naturally falls asleep without melatonin. He won't need it, right? So it's not that there's anything wrong necessarily with melatonin. Remember, it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what's causing discontentedness in the mind. If he doesn't take that melatonin and he doesn't fall asleep, he's going to have discontentedness. So that means he's still got craving, desire, attachment there. And that means that he's not going to have an enlightened mind. And it means he's going to be reborn. That's his choice if he would like to do that. But what he can find through learning and practicing these teachings and training the mind is he can eradicate those things from his practice and he'll be able to naturally fall asleep. He'll get a deeper sleep, a better sleep. He may even sleep for shorter periods of time, but his quality of sleep is going to be better and he's going to awaken more sharp, more focused, more concentrated. And that's what it means when you train the mind this way and you bring it to the middle, your mind will perform more optimally. If he's relying on these substances just to fall asleep, his mind isn't performing optimally, right? And he's going to be affected by these substances that he's taking. Okay, thank you, David. So like I said, we had a couple more questions, but given the time, I felt that maybe we could answer those in daily wisdom. Okay, that sounds good. So as you see here, the Buddhist teachings on the five precepts are much more than the rudimentary translations of don't kill, don't steal, don't commit sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't take intoxicants. You also see here that these aren't rules. They aren't commandments. He's not ordering you to do something. And if you don't do these things, somebody's going to judge you and bad things are going to happen to you. What he's saying here is if you're looking for this pure mind, if you're looking for a focused, concentrated, deep memory with clarity of thought, if you're interested in eliminating discontentedness from the mind to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind, here's the way. This is part of the path. The five precepts are gonna significantly reduce the harm that you're causing in the world, so therefore less harm is gonna to come to you. These type of teachings have been shared with us all throughout our life, starting with our primary caregivers, but we don't always understand why. And oftentimes we kind of dabble in these things, right? We maybe steal, 
We maybe do some sexual misconduct because it's kind of thrilling. We may choose to lie. We may choose to take substances that cause heedlessness because we're kind of unknowing of true reality of how is by me doing these things really going to cause any harm. And even when we do that, even when we're drinking and we're having hangovers and we're vomiting, we don't always see the harm that we're causing. We're kind of motivated to go out and do things based on social pressure or based on being liked by a certain person or a certain group of people. But what you have to realize is this is an independent journey. This is your own independent practice. Your primary caregivers were telling you these type of things for a reason, because they're part of the natural laws of existence. They're part of this natural law of gamma. Gautama Buddha explained it in a very deep, very profound way because his mind was fully, perfectly enlightened. So he was able to put words to it in ways that other people weren't. Your parents maybe just gave you the, the really rudimentary aspect of these teachings because they show up not just in the Buddhist teachings, but they show up in Jesus Christ teachings and other teachings as well, even in Muslim teachings and other traditions as well. The reason why they're in all of these various traditions is because all of these original teachers awakened their mind to these natural laws in a certain way. Jesus and Prophet Muhammad didn't explain it as natural laws. They didn't explain it as gamma. This is all Gautama Buddha's language and the way that he explains his teachings. But all of these teachers are kind of guiding humanity along a path to a better existence. And it's this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, Gautama Buddha, who started out his life as Siddhartha Gautama, that awakened his mind on his own without the help of any teachers or any guides. And he was able to articulate these precepts in a way that truly captures what it is that he's guiding us to based on how to awaken the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And what you'll learn is if you decide to practice this guidance that I'm sharing with you, and you're going to need some more help because this is just one talk. I've got everything in the book. I've got videos. I've got other things. But you're going to need some help to kind of navigate this as you start choosing to strip some of this out of your life practice. But if you choose to do these things, then you are going to see the results for yourself. You will see the condition of the mind improving where your discontentedness will be gradually eliminated, where you'll be more focused, more concentration, more memory, more clarity of thought. So this way, you don't have to believe what I say. You can take these teachings, you can contemplate, you can reflect, you can look at them and then slowly integrate them into your life when or if you choose. And as you do, you will see the truth for yourself that these teachings that this fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is giving us will absolutely lead you to this enlightened mental state. And when you get there, and as you get there on this path, as the mind is clearing itself out, you will be so thankful for all the decisions that you're making headed in this direction. Because the life that you have led in the past and all the struggles that you've encountered, all the misery, all the heartache, all the problems, by learning this wisdom in the teachings, you're going to slowly start to clear all that out and life isn't going to be a struggle for you anymore 
because you're already going to have the wisdom that you need to improve your life practice and improve the decisions that you make in life. Up until now, you haven't had this wisdom. And that's why life has been a struggle for you. Just like with that natural law of gravity, that was a struggle for you when you were unawakened and you didn't have the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. Well, now your mind is slowly, gradually learning about this natural law of gamma. And as it does, and you gain this wisdom, it's your choice of whether or not you choose to actually implement these teachings. And when you do, as you do, you will see the truth for yourself that life becomes more easy, more fluid, more peaceful, because the mind is going to become peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and everything in this world is experienced through the mind. So when you clean that up and you clean up the condition of the mind with wisdom, now everything you experience through the mind is going to be more and more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So dive into these five precepts, ask questions, schedule a personal discussion with me, send me messages, ask questions online in our Facebook group. The more you learn and practice these, the better. But of course, you're going to need to do that gradually. If you've been not practicing these five precepts in the past, then you should know all the struggles that you've encountered in life because of not practicing these. But all of that is in the past. You can completely clean up your life practice through learning and practicing these teachings. And now you're going to see your life is just going to get better and better for you. So let these things go and learn and practice these five precepts. You'll be so glad you did as the condition of the mind and the condition of your life gradually improves. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. I'm also going to be reviewing the three universal truths and the four noble truths. So if you were involved in those discussions about three or four weeks ago, this is a good time to kind of recap them so that they kind of really soak in because those are very foundational teachings for your practice. So I'm going to kind of review those a little bit on Wednesday, the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And then we're going to go into breathing mindfulness meditation and deepening your practice on breathing mindfulness meditation. So if you plan to join us on Wednesday at nine o'clock Thai time, I'll see you then. If you're not able to make it, of course, you have the Facebook group, YouTube, and the podcast that will be publishing the content from Wednesday's class at those locations. But between now and then, study these five precepts, continue your meditation, and continue to treat people around you with love, kindness, compassion, politeness, friendliness, have fun, and respect everybody around you. And then you're creating more and more wholesome gamma. So until next time, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining, and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.